oh, Jesus, this moment is mostly for me that I would perceive you. But for all of us, may we be aware of your real presence with us, how attuned you are to what life is like for us, and the degree to which you provide help. Amen. So peace is the theme that we've chosen for our um, Lenten messages this year. Disquiet comes to us from all sorts of places, from just what the world is like, troubles, natural calamities, things beyond our control that affect us, from the systems that we inhabit that often cause us distress, from within ourselves, just arising naturally from within ourselves, who we are, what we do, what our temperaments are like. But today we're going to deal with a source of disquiet (laughs) that comes from explicitly practicing Jesus' approach to faith. And then we will also encounter how, you know, given that Jesus understands that, that if we practice faith in the way that he calls us to, we will encounter distress, troublingness, that Jesus also from within the practice of faith offers us help. It's a topic that, to Jesus at least, seems to be pretty important. It's arguably the longest single conversation, so the longest single quotation, if you will, comes to us from the account of the life of Jesus as told by his close friend John, chapters 14 through 16. So each of these three chapters independently are really long, and then you string them together and it's really, really, really long. They actually begin in chapter 13 and then kind of spill out into chapter 17 where Jesus just takes the topic of conversation and brings it to God in the form of prayer. But chapter 14 verse 1 begins like this, Jesus talking to his close friends, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he ends near the end of chapter 16 by saying this, I have spoken these things to you so that you might have peace in me. And so what we can understand, again, is that this whole stretch of the text is filled with Jesus being aware that their hearts are, in fact, troubled, and that he's going to say a lot of things to try to resolve this trouble. Now, the trouble that they are experiencing comes, again, as I mentioned, because they are actually trying to implement a practice of faith with values that Jesus has put in, some of which are these. You can show the next slide. So Jesus has been teaching, implementing, trying to get his followers to buy into a practice of faith of doing a God-centered community that has these as core tenets and values. So a generous and expansive practice of welcoming and inclusion. One of the hallmarks of the Jesus faith community, one of the things that distinguished it, was the degree to which they welcomed and centered and empowered and voiced those who were typically on the margins. So they were known by the kind of catch-all phrase back then of tax collectors and sinners. These were people who were brought into the center of the faith practice in an unfettered way, given power, authority, influence, voice. There was a flattening or a reversal of the meaning and implementation of authority. 
So instead of authority being something where a group that's distinguished by some advantage gets to tell those who don't have that what to do, in this faith community, that conception of authority was either just gone, like just removed, expunged, or it was reversed, where those who had the supposed advantage, what they had to do now was help the others advance, right? Instead of telling them what to do. There was un, this is kind of a clumsy term, unadministrated access to God. So what that means is that in this faith community, all the participants could access God, whoever they were, wherever they were, whenever they wanted. You didn't have to be the right person or go to the right person or the right place or do the right thing or participate in the correct ritual. God was just accessible to you, whoever you were, wherever you were, whenever. There is a reconceptualization in the Jesus faith community of the nature and consequentiality of sin and badness, right? (laughs) So it had been the case that what was sinful was pretty clearly described. And the use of sin and sinfulness was to produce exclusion or produce a sense of being in trouble. But in the Jesus community of faith, what constituted sin, sinfulness, badness was completely different than what it had been before, and it also lost its consequentiality. These things did not put your standing with God at risk ever again in any way. And then the last um, place of tension between the Jesus faith community and the not Jesus faith community was about the identity of Jesus. Everybody wondering, who is this? The real question being, to what degree was there godness in Jesus? You know, was God in Jesus? Was Jesus to some degree or fully or in some way God? And so, a lot of tensions and questions surrounding this. What I would say is, to the degree that Jesus seemed to imply or assert, yeah. It was not so that he could be powerful or come to be dominant, but it, was, it served as validation of the other values. Jesus saying, so that you may know that I have a different and valid reconceptualization of sin and sinfulness, I say to you, lame person, rise up, take up your mat, and walk away. Right? Jesus asserting godness to validate these tenets of his new faith. (laughs) So given that, as delightful and lovely as that might sound to those of us sitting in the room, it's not surprising that it put this new fledgling faith community at odds with the big wide world, right? Because it doesn't matter whether you're in a religious setting, any setting with structure, You and I might think these things sound nice, but when you actually try to put them into place, implement them, practice them, cause them to infiltrate the organizations that you're a part of, whether it's your family, your workplace, your place of education, your experience in religion, these will not be necessarily happily welcomed. (laughs) My, My wife and I, one of the stories of our family lore is we had three boys who were young, and 
Ada's either pregnant with or we had the fourth, a girl. But the three boys were left alone for a playtime in the family room. And my wife came into the family room after a little while, and they had taken five quarts of tempera paint and a 10-pound bag of bird food and decorated the room. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> but it was also not what we had envisioned to be done with that stuff, right? And it produced a reaction, right, to put it into words. Now, in their minds, what they're thinking is, we took the lovely raw materials for creativity that you gave us, and we produced this amazing, delightful, wonderful thing. Right? Well, so with the friends of Jesus. What they're facing, the disquiet that's coming to them, is they are facing the day of reckoning for taking the raw materials of God that came to them through the text and through Jesus and producing something that was reprehensible to and reviled by the system, right? And so it's all going to collapse. It's just, Jesus has been saying, I'm going away, and my going away is not a, like, like a, I'm moving on to retirement, some sort of happy transitional thing, right? The system is going to apprehend him and expunge him. And so they're going to lose him, but it also means that the system they've inhabited of religion, of humankind, the civic political system, all the systems are going to say to them, this thing that you think is so lovely, that you believe in, that you've given your life to, that you feel is a gift to the world, we hate. And we're going to crush it. And we're going to crush you. And we're going to be successful in that endeavor. But two, it's not just that what they have done, the people will reject that sort of from the outside. It's going to crumble from within. When we read the story of Jesus going to the cross, or the way it's been taught by Christianity for much of Christian history, it's taught kind of as this um, sequence of events, this chain of causality, the end result which is Jesus dying and then coming back to life again. So you have these things that occur along the way that are kind of necessary components of that. One of which would be, for example, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. So that was bad, and Judas was bad, and he shouldn't have done that. But it's, it's, one, it's a necessary step in getting to the end. And what happens when we think of it that way is we ignore the reality on the ground for the participants. When you read the stories, the conversations of the followers of Jesus, the friends, these people who have given their lives to this endeavor, bought into the validity of these tenets as a practice of faith, lived it out, tried it, experienced hardship, uh, successes and failures, lived with each other for days, weeks, months. They're not thinking, oh, I guess that had to happen. One of us had to do it. They are dismayed. They are confused. They are baffled. They are undone. To, to think, to, to entertain the possibility that one of them, having believed so deeply, could turn and hand Jesus over to the oppressors. But not just that, we kind of too isolate Judas. 
right? Judas was particularly bad. When the story makes it clear, they all abandoned Jesus. They all capitulated. They all experienced their own giving in. You know, Peter is the other sort of most extroverted example, but Peter is just representative. No, you're not going to stay faithful. This is not just that the external forces will win against us as we stand valiantly against them. It's we're all going to give in. We're all going to experience trouble, disquiet, dismay. (laughs) And so as Jesus interacts with them, this is what he's detecting. Jesus has this attunement to the people around him. Sometimes it seems to us, it's even portrayed a little bit as like magical. Jesus can read your mind. Jesus can hear thoughts from a few blocks back down the road. I think mostly Jesus is just really, really attuned to you and me. He knows what you're like. He knows what I'm like. He knows how we behave in certain situations, what we're going to think and feel. So he just says it. And so here I think Jesus is attuned to all the sources of disquiet, unrest, troubledness that are coming to his dearly beloved followers because they have actually bought into this whole thing that he is leading them to do, right? And so as he detects that, Jesus has a response, which is a nice response. Jesus is kind. He cares for his friends and followers. So he's not dismissive. He's not mad. He's not thinking, oh, i got to find a new group and see if they can do any better. He offers help. And the help he offers is remarkable. And it's especially good because each of the sources of help, there are three of them that I'm going to offer you, begins with an F. And I just think that was really nice of Jesus to have anticipated the English language and our need for alliteration. <laughs> so, so you can put up the first one. Jesus offers his followers the promise of a friend. This is just one statement. I shall entreat, and Jesus uses the language of the Father in this conversation. I shall entreat the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you throughout the age. The spirit of truth, which the cosmos cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows it. You know it because it abides with you and will be within you. I shall not leave you orphans. It's just lovely, right? The language of Jesus. He understands what it will feel like to have him be going away. You'll feel like orphans. And so he says, well, one of the things that I'm going to leave to help you with is a friend. It's variously described as counselor, advocate, the Holy Spirit. There will be this entity, Jesus says, who I will send to you. And the specific things that it will do, it'll help to remind you of what I've said to you. It'll help, I think specifically he's meaning, it'll help to remind you of the practices of faith, the tenets and values, why we do things the way we do. It will encourage you to keep doing them when you're finding it hard. It'll be like me with you, this lovely promise of a friend. Next, he promises a family. So this is from Jesus' prayer that comes in chapter 17, where he just, he just takes what he's been saying to the followers and brings it as a prayer to God. 
I pray not for them only. Them here means the ones in the room with me, so the ones with me right now. I pray not for them only, but also for those having faith in me on account of their word, that all may be one, just as you, God, are in me and I in you, that they too might be in us, so that the cosmos may have faith that you sent me forth. And I have given to them the glory you have given me, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they might be brought to complete unity. Again, this deep awareness from Jesus that what you and I often, what, what can be most helpful to us as we are trying to be true to these very difficult things, these things that get us in trouble, that he's asked us to do. <laughs> One of the things that Jesus says he knows is helpful is that we do it together. That we have a community, that we have a oneness, we have a commonality to the endeavor. Um, large quantities of the words that he uses and the instructions he gives in this passage are just a new command I give you, love one another. Stay connected to each other. He prefaces the whole thing with his own personal launching of a sacrament, the washing of the feet, right? Oh, serve each other. Be connected to each other in this way. This will help you through. And the last thing he offers <clears throat> is a future. In my Father's house, Jesus says, there are many places of rest. Would I otherwise have told you that I'm going to make a place ready for you? And if I go and make a place ready for you, I am coming again and will take you along with me so that where I am you might be also. So here Jesus saying too, another source of help I think that he knows can be meaningful to us is if we know that on the other side of whatever struggles we're going to face, there is a happy welcome, a future of promise and goodness, that can be something to look forward to. That can be something to keep in mind as we go forward. <clears throat> so Jesus makes mention here a couple of times, at least this is how John presents his words, as uh, being aware of this as a cosmic phenomenon, a cosmic thing. It's almost as if Jesus has the awareness, I don't know for you, like if, if you, as you look at those values, to me, I think of them, oh, again, they sound lovely, but if you actually implement them, especially in the context of faith, they can produce trouble that comes towards you. And there's a place where Jesus says, <clears throat> he says this, if the cosmos hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the cosmos, the cosmos would have loved its own, but since you are not of the cosmos, the cosmos therefore hates you. I think Jesus has this sense that what he's asking his followers to do doesn't just go against the grain of human social behavior or power structures. It's like antithetical to the structure of life in the cosmos. And my sense, or my wondering at least, is if he's referring here specifically to the way that violent competitiveness is woven into the fabric of how life works, advances, progresses. And he's saying, what I'm asking you to do in this faith community, inspired by God, is the opposite of that. And so you will encounter trouble. It will be difficult. It will be a struggle. People won't like it. They will try to stamp it out. And I hear in Jesus 
as he says this, so he gives these specific things, and if you were to read the passage, you'd see that there are more that I've just chosen three that work because they're sort of F things, <laughs> you know. But what I hear most from Jesus is, again, he is so attuned to what this will be like, and he is so motivated to be helpful. It feels almost like Jesus kind of feels responsible for the trouble that we get into if we try to do life his way. You know, you hear this in his prayer. It's like, oh God, they're really doing it. They have no idea what this will actually be like. Oh, what can I do to help? And he just throws things. He just flings things at us to be helpful. A future promise, a family. There, there are so many more promises in this passage that if we do things his way, if we ask him for help when we need help, he'll be there and he'll give it to us. And It's just pouring out of him. Right? All these things intended to, in the midst of living this practice of faith, bring you peace. Bring you joy. That given how hard it can be, how against the grain, you can still have the goodness of God as a real and close thing. Um, what I touched on with this was uh, nine or ten years ago, I was in a state of being where I just had to um, shed from my life all the constraints of religion as I had been living it, which were filled with all the opposites of what I described in those values. Right, a clear power and authority structure, a right and a wrong, deep consequentiality of sin, sinfulness, badness. I just had to shed it. It was so, I, I experienced more anxiety than I've ever experienced in my life that summer, just deep anxiety. Because of how these things were causing me to feel and because of the destabilizingness of shedding them. <laughs> my wife will tell you, just days of anxiousness. But in the midst of it, I had the deepest encounter with Jesus that I have ever had. And it was explicitly because I was doing this, because I was in the midst of this, Jesus came to be so present and real and perceptible to me. Who Jesus is, his goodness, his presence, his closeness, and the kind of future that he promised me. Like the vision for where it was we were going to end up together was just strong and alive and vivid and powerful and compelling. You know. So Jesus closes with this. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I give to you not as the cosmos gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. So I'm going to close just with a moment for us to try to perceive that, how Jesus might be coming to you, making you aware of what it means for you to try to put these practices of faith like into reality in your world, and how Jesus can come to you to bring you peace and joy. So Jesus, thank you that you are attuned to us, that you know who we are, that you know how the world resists living life this way and how we ourselves um, find it hard. Don't live as we ourselves would want to live. So would you come and be present to that? 
to that reality for us and show us how you're here to help each one of us.